Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. La santé est tout. La santé est tout. Health is everything. We've all been there. Stress at work or at home, anxiety ramping up, long hours and lack of sleep, and just generally wired about life's challenges. And then we get sick. Most of the time, we just get a cold, maybe a little virus. But then we also know folks who endure that kind of stress day in and day out, a lifetime's worth of anxiety and emotional overload, and all too often we see them seriously ill with cancers and other ailments. We know that isolation can be fatal and stress makes you sick, but why? In this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Steve Cole, a professor of medicine and psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the UCLA School of Medicine. His research uses genomics and computational bioinformatics to map the biological pathways by which social environments influence gene expression, the expression of viruses, cancer cells, and the immune system itself. Translation. He explores how our social contexts influences our biology to produce either health and well-being or disease and despair. Dr. Cole is a true pioneer in the field of human social genomics and supports a worldwide array of research programs in his role as director of the UCLA Social Genomics Core Laboratory. And in a time when viruses are front and center and where conversations of immune response are increasingly common, Dr. Cole's work tells us what we know and what we don't know about how community and biology are intertwined. Hey, Steve, thanks. Thanks for joining me today. Um, My pleasure. You know, it's interesting. I read an article recently about something called a surge capacity, uh, a metaphor for the fact that, you know, we've got brain and body systems that were evolved to deal with short-term stressors, helped us survive running away from a saber-toothed cat or something like that. But that in the modern world, these systems are really good for short-term stress are just flat-out overloaded. And, and certainly COVID has made it a lot worse. I mean, we're all feeling worn out, fried, worried, worried about getting sick, we're anxious. Then some people like like me perhaps worry that if you worry, you're going to more likely to get sick. Um, there really is this connection between stress and getting sick. Talk to us about that. Why Why is that? What has your work shown us? The things that we know are important, either based on social epidemiology or just based on our own personal experiences of life. We've all, all of us seen how bad lives and feeling, you know, marginalized and excluded and insecure and threatened, how having a rough life can translate into having a short life. If the diseases we're trying to understand are things like heart attacks and neurodegenerative diseases and metastatic cancers and and infections, what controls whether we get those diseases or not? To unravel this question, Dr. Cole and his team of researchers began looking at the 20,000 genes that make up the human genome and asking, well, what happens when those genes are active in life circumstances that are breeding grounds for disease? In this case, things like social isolation, living in poverty, bereavement. He began with a basic question. At some point, you start thinking about genomes with a slightly different hat on. And this is the hat of evolutionary theory, of of asking, why do we have genes that work the way they do? Something about our history, something about our way of living must have, you know, sort of conferred the genomic configurations and sensitivities and response proclivities that we have right now. And when you look at the way we live today, 
it does not make a whole lot of sense. That's kind of my rhetorical question at the beginning. Why? But instead of measuring stress hormones, which had been done thousands of times in various studies, he went upstream and asked, how are our genes actually changed by our social circumstances? And in this regard, what controls whether we get heart disease or infection or neurodegenerative disease? Dr. Cole went all the way back to our fight or flight response, what he calls the beast version of threats, running away from predators. We started thinking a lot about, okay, let's go back to fight or flight physiological theories and how they're really thinking about things. And we, we came to kind of think of fight or flight as fundamentally, I'll call it a beast vision of you know, sort of threat. This idea that the big things that threatened us in life were a saber-toothed tiger biting us or, uh, you know, sort of running across the veldt with uh, some kind of predator in hot pursuit or something like that. So human beings um, are, are actually pretty soft and squishy morsels for lots of creatures out there. You know, why didn't we all get eaten, then, is the question. The secret to human survival is sociality. The secret to human survival isn't strength or speed or incredible vision. It's comity. It is social support. It is good feeling. It is banding together. It's community. Community is why people don't get eaten by animals every day. People who get together suddenly will hunt the saber-toothed tiger instead of vice versa. In fact, those people, once they get together and take down a few tigers, they set their sights on the woolly mammoth and they can eat for a year after that. So thinking about human threat, not in terms of injury per se, but in terms of some combination of injury and sociality was really kind of the, the linchpin for us. You know, when that saber-toothed tiger bites me, I'm, I'm either going to die of bleeding to death pretty fast, or I'm going to die of an infection. Uh, over the course of the, the next few days. So my immune system really can't stop the first one. If I'm just like ripped open, it's all over. But it turns out a lot of us, when we look at the anthropological record, a lot of us actually didn't die of hemorrhaging. A lot of us died of infectious diseases. A lot of these infections came from wounding injuries, from the introduction, particularly of bacteria, into the sterile spaces of our bodies. So uh, those of you who aren't used to thinking of physiology, we, we sort of think of ourselves as filled with bacteria. Well, that's kind of true. We have some holes in us, like our, our you know, alimentary canal that is full of bacteria. But actually, most of the human body is pretty clean. There's not a lot of bacteria inside most of our flesh. When the saber-toothed tiger bites us, though, bacteria do get in there. And boy, do they have a great time. They grow like crazy. Um, it is a great idea if a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you to get all your ducks in a row for fighting bacterial infections, because that is the kind of pathogen that's going to ride in on the tiger's fangs. That's what's going to get in your body and kill you of sepsis within the next week or so. So actually, if you had an immune system, and the immune system wasn't doing just one thing for a living, if you had an immune system that actually had to make decisions about how to behave in the body, it wouldn't be a bad idea for that immune system to take some advice from stress biology and, and say, whoa, hey, there's a lot of norepinephrine around here. That means the brain somewhere thinks that I'm in danger. And usually when I'm in danger, uh, I'm going to, you know, the, the risk that I'm going to be wounded is actually pretty high. So let's activate those aspects of my immune response that are particularly good at dealing with wounding injuries and their consequence in terms of bacterial infections. That's what we in immunology today 
call inflammation. But I guess, you know, and of course, in the world of COVID, right, this is, I mean, there's this emerging evidence that they get this big inflammatory activation, you know, the, the cytokines get kicked up. And it's, it's as if, you know, in some people, the virus confuses the immune system, and it starts this sort of attack and the interferon signaling, uh, you know, plummets. And uh, I mean, it, it just, uh, COVID is, is, is enacting what you just described to us. I mean, that's really... That's exactly right. And that's why it's just so tragically, I mean, I don't even want to use the word ironic, but, you know, what happens when people socially distance, especially psychosocially distance, when they feel disconnected, everything that happens in their body goes in the opposite direction of what we want for COVID biological resistance. In other words, just like you said, you know, our innate antiviral response, which is awesome against coronaviruses in general, this one in particular, um, you know, that's the, the, the interferon system is no small part of the reason that the majority of, you know, coronavirus infections are asymptomatic. So that system just knocks them down mercilessly. But if you can't get your interferon system activated in a timely manner, that virus is fast. It will get out in front of your system and basically, you know, be too far down the road for the interferon system to kind of contain within a short period of time. So that, you know, that, that's kind of failure A. If we are too stress-threatened and insecure, too isolated, too anxious about the virus, too anxious about the economy, too anxious about the politics and the culture and can our kids go to school and all this other kind of stuff. Every single one of those things gnaws at this equilibrium and kicks it towards less interferon response and more inflammatory response. So now you've got the virus replicating like crazy in your airways uh, and you know it, it kind of marches through your tissue kind of wave after wave until it gets down to your lower lungs and that's when you know suddenly the immune system will will kind of perk up and go okay whoa, 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 we've had this like this sort of in the grass viral infection that i didn't even notice but now it's everywhere uh you know tissue is dying guts of cells are being spilled right and left that is the invitation for this, this you know, sort of monocyte, macrophage, generally kind of myeloid lineage cellular response. And those cells are not you know, subtle, nuanced, you know, sort of highly discriminating interferon producers. Those cells are explosive suicide bombers of inflammation. And so if the virus can get out and stay below the immune system so that the interferon system doesn't contain them, our residual, you know, sort of antibodies and T cells from earlier, you know, sort of neighboring coronavirus infections aren't enough to contain it, then, you know, suddenly the immune system wakes up, says there's dead cells everywhere. I need to, you know, sort of uh, have a, 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 an inflammatory, essentially macrophage response against this kind of thing. And that polarization grows with age um, as well. So that's, the, and, and also with adiposity. So those two things, age and adiposity, are additional kicks towards more inflammation. So if you take those, you can think of them as somatic predispositions from age and, and adiposity towards more inflammatory response and less antiviral response. And then you, you know, sort of add as frosting this threat, insecurity, isolation, anxiety, just everything that's gnawing at us psychologically, socially, and culturally right now. You just have a, you know, an unholy conspiracy of, of invitation for the body to go in exactly the wrong direction. And the good news is that 
you know, the docs have figured this out now. And so, you know, in, in general, clinical practice these days is highly attentive to like, you need to stop the inflammation. Like even, they don't even worry primarily about the virus. They worry about the inflammation. They worry about that because that's what's going to drown your lungs and uh, basically, you know, sort of put you so far around the bend, we can't get you back. It, we can stop the virus. The virus itself actually isn't that incredibly lethal. That's why large numbers of people get the infection, but sometimes don't even have symptoms. Often if they do have symptoms, not terribly severe, sometimes severe. But uh, you can think of it as like, you know, sort of in its own right, a minor time bomb that can be massively amplified by these collective effects of, you know, age and adiposity and, and stress biology. So if isolation, which, you know, I mean, in almost all kind of foraging hunter-gatherer groups, you know, uh, ostracism was the first horror of punishment. And, you know, there's anthropologic accounts of, of people in tribal groups, you know, just dying from ostracism. I mean, psychologically, but then you're you have like, to. I mean, a lone human being is just lunch for something. Yeah, else, right? I mean, so it, exactly. It, it is. It is all the stakes in the game. Yeah, it's all the stakes in the game. So, so it makes it, it makes it sort of very rational sense across evolutionary time. Um, but we find ourselves in the modern world, and uh, we get this um, real evolutionary mismatch of, you know, um, sort of being haunted by by you know saber tooth tigers that no longer exist, and and some sort of confusional state where we our our, our deeper brain and our body seems to think we're still in that world. It is a tragedy, isn't it? I mean, that's, I mean, we're, we're, you know, wired for a world that is just very different than the one we're in. It, it, these are all invitations to feel threatened, stressed, or insecure. Uh, and, you know, mounting a powerful inflammatory response because I might not get my grant or I'm stuck in traffic. These are, you know, Things where it does me no good to generate an inflammatory response and amp up my immune system. And yet, you know, the body I was born with has this as its native programming. And it's very difficult to override it. There are some things, thankfully, that we're learning about these programs that give us ideas about how to intervene. You hit on one of them. If you can basically psych your brainstem out of being threatened and insecure, you will significantly reduce the you know sort of intensity of this adverse biology so this you know meditation and all kinds of other wellness practices that that kind of recenter people that one of the things that's been the biggest surprise is looking at you know sort of aspects of human psychology and experience that correlate with better um ctra biology even in people who are confronting really adverse life circumstances, even people who live in poverty, people who live in war zones, people who, um, you know, sort of are seeing the worst that life has to offer. Still, there's variability. Some people manage to stay, you know, somewhat maybe predominantly resilient, whereas, you know, other people fall, you know, just completely victim in all the ways that most of us would on average. So it wasn't necessarily the happy-go-lucky people who were doing well. It was the people who had found a reason to live and kind of a purpose and goal in their life. Their biology looked pretty good, even in situations where we would expect it to look pretty bad. Purpose in life and, and the meaningful existence and what uh, philosophers have called eudaimonic well-being. Um, people who are connected to some kind of cause or purpose greater than their own self-gratification, 
um, who are in it to make the world a better place, to help people around them, to help the community, to help humanity. Folks who are kind of activated in that way tend to show pretty favorable biology, even when confronted with highly adverse life circumstances. We and others are now kind of knee deep in, in research on the kind of, if you will, the psychophysiology of all of that. What's going on in a brain? It turns out that our brain has a set of threat circuits um, that we've been talking about that kind of advises the brainstem. So this, you can think of these as things like the amygdala, certain parts of the cortex that are all involved in planning and forecasting and figuring out whether the world is going according to plan or whether things are bad and you have to be worried and fix stuff, or even worse, things are really bad and you have to fight and flee. When we're happy though, there's one group of reward circuits that gets activated when you've gotten what you want. For normal people, this is like getting married and having a family and you know getting a great job and seeing your grandchildren, all that good stuff. But there's a separate set of circuits in the brain that is uniquely developed to sustain hope and seeking and striving. And this system doesn't get activated when you get what you want. It gets activated when you're searching for what you want, when you're pursuing what you want, when you're making what you want. This striving or aspirational or seeking neurobiology, it turns out, also talks to the brainstem at the same time as that threat circuitry talks to the brainstem. And in fact, they kind of arm wrestle a little to determine what the brainstem is going to do. So it looks at the moment like what happens when people are feeling a sense of hope and aspiration and engagement with life is the ventral striatum is more and more active as they pursue their you know, noble and virtuous goals. And that system is continuously telling the brainstem that things are all right. You're doing what you should do. You're after what's important. Stay the course. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't feel, you know, lost or bereft because you're doing what you should. You're doing what's really important. This is the best way for you to live in this moment. And that kind of neurobiology seems to be very good at shoving aside this fight or flight stress physiology. Essentially, it's my bet, and this we have less direct evidence on, so you know, consider this speculation clearly marked at this point, not, not fully shown, but the most theoretically appealing account of why we have such strong ventral striatum is because it allows us to care a lot about the well-being of others. And this you know, primordial version of this is caring about the well-being of our progeny, you know, this connection between parents and children. And, you know, I think what COVID has taught us and what I've thought about repeatedly is that that human interdependency, um, there's an immunologic story there. You can't do it without uh, uh, dealing with the viruses, right? They become part of this sort of pattern. If we want to do this, um, we're not going to be able to keep excluding them from the purview of our efforts, right? Because uh, yeah. that's, that's right. the... That's the, you know, that's one of the great challenges of being what we just described is uh, we then become, you know, our, our togetherness um, promotes their togetherness, you know. It, it's, yep, uh, yep, yep, that is the downside. And that's why viruses track sociality as we now, you know, renewedly appreciate. But at the same time, uh, that is also historically, you know, I mean, it's not like viruses are great, they are a scourge. But this is how social systems in general, in the way we originally lived them, 
managed to, you know, humans as a species survived by some interesting combination of sociality on small scales, but dispersion on large scales. It's not like hunter-gatherers were, you know, in bands of 80,000. They were in bands of 80 in no small part because if a virus really did get you, you know, virus kind of mutates to become unusually lethal and and malignant, um, you know, humanity will lose 80 or maybe 80 plus another, you know, 160 or so that those 80 interacted with, but it's not going to lose 80 million or uh, 80 billion. And that's the complication now is that we've ridden this horse of sociality so hard and so far and so extremely towards integration that we are now, you know, what it's not perfectly the case. There's still in homogeneity, but we are to a first approximation now a giant sea of humanity air travel and international travel of all other sorts, you know, this capacity for large cities to kind of coalesce and sustain. I mean, this is, you know, this is what viruses take advantage of. This is why this coronavirus got around the world as fast as it did, how it was able to kill as many people as it did. This thing probably wouldn't have made it out of the, you know, first or second hunter-gatherer tribe it infected, given how fast it is, because the per unit interaction between these tribes and other tribes, you know, the, the per unit time interaction rates are so low, you probably would have basically, you know, killed everybody or everybody would have become immune by the time they bumped into another village. But now we're one big giant village. And again, just one additional way in which, you know, this is just not necessarily the way that uh, our bodies, you know, originally evolved to sustain this, this particular lifestyle. So it is what it is. We've got it. We're going to have to work with it, but it's helpful to know something about how we're wired and what to take into account as we develop strategies and policies to try and deal with these kinds of threats. Yep. With that, Steve, thank you so much, man. What I just, uh, Endlessly fascinating, man. I just thank you for taking the time to talk with us uh, today. It just manitized so many things together. It, it, uh, I'm gonna, when we're done, I'm gonna go think for a while. Just <laughs> well, don't, don't think too hard. There's, there's the yeah. do as well. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Actually, that's, uh, yeah, try not to, uh, try not to activate or deactivate my antiviral immunity. Um, <laughs> that's exactly right. All right. Good thank you, you, sir. All right. I will talk to you later. Thank you. Yep. See ya. We've all been there, stress at work or at home, anxiety ramping up, long hours and lack of sleep, and just generally wired about life's challenges. And then we get sick. Most of the time, we just get a cold, maybe a little virus. But then we also know folks who endure that kind of stress day in and day out, a lifetime's worth of anxiety and emotional overload, and all too often we see them seriously ill with cancers and other ailments. We know that isolation can be fatal and stress makes you sick, but why? In this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Steve Cole, a professor of medicine and psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the UCLA School of Medicine. His research uses genomics and computational bioinformatics to map the biological pathways by which social environments influence gene expression, the expression of viruses, cancer cells, and the immune system itself. Translation. He explores how our social contexts influences our biology to produce either health and well-being or disease and despair. Dr. Cole is a true pioneer in the field of human social genomics and supports a worldwide array of research programs in his role as director of the UCLA Social Genomics Core Laboratory. 
And in a time when viruses are front and center and where conversations of immune response are increasingly common, Dr. Cole's work tells us what we know and what we don't know about how community and biology are intertwined. Welcome, Steve. Well, of course, I don't need to tell anybody that life is stressful these days. You know, it's interesting. I read an article recently about something called a surge capacity, uh, a metaphor for the fact that, you know, we've got brain and body systems that were evolved to deal with short-term stressors, helped us survive running away from a saber-toothed cat or something like that. But that in the modern world, these systems that were really good for short-term stress are just flat-out overloaded. And, and certainly COVID has made it a lot worse. I mean, we're all feeling worn out, fried, worried, worried about getting sick, we're anxious. Then some people like like me perhaps worry that if you worry, you're going to more likely to get sick. Um, there really is this connection between stress and getting sick. Talk to us about that. Why Why is that? What has your work shown us? To unravel this question, Dr. Cole and his team of researchers began looking at the 20,000 genes that make up the human genome and asking, well, what happens when those genes are active in life circumstances that are breeding grounds for disease? In this case, things like social isolation, living in poverty, bereavement. He began with a basic question. But instead of measuring stress hormones, which had been done thousands of times in various studies, he went upstream and asked, how are our genes actually changed by our social circumstances? And in this regard, what controls whether we get heart disease or infection or neurodegenerative disease? Dr. Cole went all the way back to our fight or flight response, what he calls the beast version of threats, running away from predators. It's difficult to override it, says Dr. Cole, but not impossible. His research points to several ways we can retrain our brains, including surprising research on resilience that can be a lesson for all of us. Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. Zdrowie est tout. Health is everything. Thank you for listening to Health is Everything. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, or rate it on Apple Podcast. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at CSHH or at Exploring Health on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Dr. Christine Whelan, along with Dr. Charles Raison, wishing you the best of health until we meet again.